Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the New Nation Podcast. My name is Mike, and I will be your host today. We've got a really, really exciting episode with Anthony D'Ambrosio, who is the writer-director of the new Maximilian Kolbe uh, bio-drama. I guess you can call it. It's a movie about a real person, and it's dramatic, a bio-drama. He'll be on to talk about uh, the movie and St. Maximilian Kolbe, one of our most beloved saints of the 20th century. Before that, though, something weird happened. My wife was mentioning this to me earlier, that um, she gave birth at Vanderbilt, and then she got a letter saying that there was a data breach at Vanderbilt, which exposed some of her information, I'm assuming, which brings me to a great lead-in of my brand new and starting again uh, relationship with my partner, Aura. So let's hear a little bit about Aura, and then we can get into the episode. Data brokers sell your information to scammers, spammers, and anyone else who may want to target you. Your full name, email, home address, health records, even your relatives. It's all out there. That's why I've been using Aura, the sponsor of today's podcast. Aura shows me which data brokers are selling my information and automatically submits opt-out requests for me. Cleaning up my information not only helps reduce the amount of spam I get, but it protects me from hackers who could use this information to help them access my social media accounts, my bank accounts, or other sensitive information. Aura also does so much more to protect me and my family from online threats I can't see. It's really easy to set up, so I don't have to download several different apps to get things like antivirus, VPN, password management, parental controls, identity theft insurance, and more. I get everything at one affordable price. You may already have one or two of these tools already, but not having Aura is like locking the front door and leaving the back door wide open. Aura is always on, doing the hard work of keeping me safe so I can focus on other tasks with peace of mind. I value my privacy, and I value yours, my valued listener. You can go to Aura.com slash new to start your two-week free trial, also linked below in the description. Remember, guys, it's a two-week free trial, so allow Aura to be the security that gives you the peace of mind and the comfort that someone out there is looking out for you. Aura.com slash new. Hi there, everybody, and thank you for listening to another episode of the New Nation podcast. I'm your host, Mike. I'm very happy to have a guest with me on this podcast today that is going to be talking about his film, A Triumph of the Heart. This is writer, director, Anthony D'Ambrosio. Thank you for joining the show, Anthony. Thanks so much for having me, man. Awesome, awesome. We're really excited. Um, As I was just telling you before, St. Maximilian Kolbe, everyone loves him. Everyone who's listening to the show, people know that I've mentioned him before on the show. Uh, He's probably, I think, one of the most important saints of the 20th century. I think we could probably both agree to that. Um... And yeah, we're here to talk about him a little bit. I want to talk to you about your movie, obviously, but I also want to talk about the process of making films because uh, if it's one thing my audience knows is that they can't get me to shut up about my own movie. So, <laughs> so we're gonna talk. We're gonna talk about that. Uh, so, just a little bit about you, and not necessarily uh, your whole background, but just a little bit like where where do you come from in the world, and uh, you know uh, how long have you been writing and directing? Yeah, Halen from uh, Denver. Colorado, but um, Texas boy, born and bred, and I'm a I'm a huge fan of um, of film. I actually came to film much later on in my life. I was uh, a homeschooled kid, you know, and so not a lot of film, not a lot of TV. We're just like <laughs> given books and sticks yeah. and lots of land outside to play in. But uh, yeah, it was it was actually much later on. I was uh, I started running an agency later on in my life, and um, as entrepreneurs are want to do, um, 
I, anytime somebody was like, hey, can you do this? I was like, yeah, I need money. So yeah, I can do that. And um, we were doing a lot of like social media stuff and people started asking if we did ads. And I was like, oh, yeah, sure. I can totally do an ad. And I afterwards called up my buddy, Sam Sorich, who I went to seminary with and who is a, a filmmaker, um, really fantastic filmmaker in his own right. And so be like, hey, can you teach me how to do this and help me out and come down and um, that doing small ads for nonprofits was the the place where I started and really loved it. I think there's something really collaborative about film and and um, it's much less, uh, I'm a writer, so you spend a lot of time as a writer just like sitting alone in, in <laughs> like yep. this vacuum. And uh, I realized that film was, was like that, but with other people. And so it was therefore a lot more fun. Okay. Uh, so you, you produced uh, video content for an ad agency that you ran or owned? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Oh, cool. Were your clients kind of all across the board or were they focused in a specific area? Yeah, it started out at, uh, really just lots of nonprofits and local startups like climbing gyms and breweries and things mm. like that. Um, and I helped to found something called Catholic Creatives, which then pulled my whole sort of network and world back into the Catholic Church, which um, at the time I was a little bit resentful of, but um, turned out to be a huge blessing for me and oh, awesome. really teed me up to to make this film that uh, I'm working on now. Oh, cool. Well, let's not gloss over the fact that you said seminary. Okay. So <laughs> what kind of uh, family did you come from? Were they? I assume the Ambrosio sounds Italian to me. So I assume <laughs> yeah. that you come from a Catholic Italian family. Very yes, that's right. That's it's actually Catholic Irish, but oh, um, the Irish was just completely eclipsed by the the Italian in my. It family. happens. It, it yeah. happens. Yeah, yeah. My it's wife is half. She's she's half Irish, half Italian too. But she's uh, got the yeah. Irish. She's got the Irish last name. Ah, okay, cool. Yeah, yeah. My grandmother is a Carey. Carey. So. Oh, okay. Uh, Oh, cool. So, okay. So Catholic family, Catholic upbringing. Uh, what, what drove you to seminary? And I obviously don't want to get into, if you don't want to, you know, why, you know, why didn't you uh, complete seminary or why aren't you a priest right now? But uh, how, how, oh, so, okay. Yeah, sure. Okay. That's fine. Um, but yeah, how old were you when you entered seminary? Um, I entered right out of high school. I was, uh, I was a punk rock emo kid, rebelled really hard in high school. Mm -hmm. Um, and then, had a had a conversion, had this kind of taste of of worldly success that gave me a sense of of its vacuity and the emptiness there. And um, I think that feeling of of desiring meaning and desiring kind of a uh, an alternative to the lifestyle that I had been living in high school really was what drove me to um, drove me to seminary. Oh, interesting. Okay, I like that. Okay, so you go to seminary and you decide. Obviously, like you said, this probably isn't for me. Did you go right from seminary? Did you go into college in the secular world, or did you, you know, work any sort of uh, jobs that led you to the advertising agency? <laughs> no, it was. Uh, I left. I left seminary right at the end of uh, my college degree. So I got a philosophy degree mm -hmm. and um, was completely. Uh, I think a lot of people that you talk to when they, they leave something that's like this kind of insular, it's sort of like leaving the army or something like that or coming back. You're like, don't really know how to fit back into the world in a way. Right, and right. that was that was how it was for me, for sure. So I took a job doing youth ministry. And while I was doing that, I um, <laughs> I realized that there was like a dead end here. It was yeah. like, 
how how do I um, make my way into the world? And I ended up um, getting going to <laughs> that's some pretty funny stories about this. I actually um, found this agency that had on their website, like you can send us an email, you can uh, bring us your resume uh, or you can send us a carrier pigeon. That was like, for some reason, that was like a big part of their brand was like pigeons and stuff. So okay. I literally found a service that sent them a carrier pigeon um, and <laughs> and told them I would be dropping my resume by uh, and ended up like basically presenting myself and saying, hey, I will give you guys uh, 20 hours a week for free if you teach me uh, the marketing, uh, basically the marketing agency world. Uh, I just like loved it and wanted to be in that place. And and so the owner ended up mentoring me for many years and yeah. uh, I got into sales and I was doing sales for them. And after that, uh, I started my own firm. So that's, that's awesome. You took the initiative there. It's like one of those things where I, I think people don't expect other people to take that seriously. And then when they find someone who's like, wow, he's he actually sent us a carrier pigeon. We like that sort of initiative that he took. And <laughs> I mean, clearly, he clearly wants to get in front of us. That's, that's why in any job interview, I've always talked about the follow-up is one of the most important things to do. Um, especially if it's like a weird sort of, uh, let's say interactive interview or anything like that. But even as a young kid, pre-internet, when I would do uh, interviews, I would always follow up on the phone the day later saying, hey guys, thank you for seeing me. And I've just heard from so many people, even if I didn't get the job, we really appreciate the follow-up. So good on you yeah. for sending the carrier pigeon. Uh, so let, let's let's talk a little bit about St. Maximilian Kobe. Let's talk a little bit about your movie. We don't necessarily have to go in depth about his life and his martyrdom because like I've said, the people who listen to The New Nation, they're pretty familiar with St. Maximilian Kobe. Um, <laughs> if you can give me let's say the log line to his life, what would it be? Oh man, the log line to his life. It's different from the log line to my movie. So right, uh, right. I have to do a little bit more like creative thinking here, but mm -hmm. um, I would say uh, something to the tune of militant Catholic priest goes to Japan, uh, experiences burnout, comes uh, comes back to the comes back to Poland as a hero um, with the biggest newspaper in the city and ends up trading his life uh, to save another man's life in Auschwitz. Right, right, yeah. That's those are that's a good log line. That's pretty much the cliff notes to essentially what happened. Um, but I guess for anybody that needs, I guess maybe a little bit more. We could say that um, he was he was a Franciscan, right? Or no, was he was he a Franciscan, Franciscan. monk? Yeah, yeah he was Franciscan. a Franciscan uh, who started his own newspaper. That uh, you know, during in Poland, uh, after I guess you know the Nazis took over, they essentially allowed him to keep his newspaper and keep his monastery or whatever it was until he started to get super uh, critical of them and you know not signing the. Uh, I guess the agreement or whatever to pledge loyalty to Nazi Germany or whatever it was, and eventually is arrested by the SS and sent to Auschwitz, where he later be martyred. Um, he was actually he, offered. He was actually offered um, citizenship because his dad uh, was actually. Oh, he has German lineage, right? That's right. Yeah. yeah. So they were okay. like, "Oh, we think we could maybe like bring this guy into our into our world." I think there was also part of why they let him stay was because um, they thought like, "Oh, this this guy might have some." Uh, you know, some fascist leanings, some like really right 
leaning uh, stuff. He's very conservative, obviously, and right. he's got some German heritage. Let's let's offer him some citizenship, see if we can get him on our team. And then as soon as it became obvious that he was not actually a fan, um, right. that he was uh, a, like critical of fascism, yeah. um, he got brought into Auschwitz, yeah. Yeah, Nazi fascism, no. Christo-fascism, maybe yes. Also, Maximilian Kolbe, big disliker of Freemasons. So yeah. anybody who out there is listening, like, you know, St. Saint, Colby, Saint uh, super base when it comes to Freemasonry and uh, the, <laughs> the, the evils that uh, that they offer to the world. Um, okay, so a little bit about the movie. The the movie Triumph of the Heart, and like I, I, I told you this before we started, you did a whiplash. If anybody's seen Whiplash, they, they know the movie. Um, about the the drummer who is at you know for lack of a better place basically he's at Juilliard of is he at Juilliard or no I don't I don't know if he's like I don't actually think at Juilliard it. Yeah. no they don't but he's at an elite music school and the feature Whiplash came from a short and your movie Triumph of the Heart seems like it Triumph of the Heart seems like it comes from the short uh, into I have it right here. Into Death and Through It, is it? What is it called? Into Death and Beyond It. Yeah. Into Death and Beyond It, right. So what I wanted to ask you was, can you explain the impetus for um, Into Death and Beyond It and then what happens directly after? And then it's not until years later that you pursue Triumph of the Heart. So give us a little bit of that story. Yeah, yeah. So um, one of the things that was happening with my agency uh, early on was that we became this like strategic design think tank for all of the young adult um, groups that were that were founding and sort of starting up in the Catholic world in uh, in Texas, uh, at mm-hmm. least in Dallas. And um, I think all of these people that were now getting into places of leadership in the diocese or in these bigger parishes had all been youth ministers with me and my twin brother. And so, um, they all started to realize like, hey, we need a creative team and there's not enough money to actually like hire anyone individually. So we became this kind of like shared creative team for all of these different uh, groups. And we were doing a lot of um, strategy and brainstorming. One of the problems that we we're really trying to um, come together around was how do we reach people who are uh, unchurched, dechurched, who've lost their faith? Uh, we know there's there's thousands and thousands and thousands of them uh, in the DFW Metroplex that perhaps went to youth group or um, that grew up Catholic and now are, are sort of out there. They had conversion experiences. They actually probably would come back if if the right you know kind of experience were offered to them. Uh, and so we uh, worked on something called the 635, which was a um, an outreach to that people group that met not in a church, but in the Granada Theater and uh, did all these different like kind of creative programming things to um, to speak to them. And one of the series that we did was a series on grief and doubt. Uh, and we wanted to find a story that was an inroad into that that could start conversations that could be like this through line mm-hmm. for the programming. And we decided that we would do a uh, a short film about St. Maximilian Kolbe that was like a 12 Angry Men style mm-hmm. um, short film where... Uh, all of the people who he was inside of the cell with would have these conversations about um, about God, about suffering, about doubt uh, with Colby. So it was like a high stakes way to sort of open the conversation. And um, when we did that, it I, it was like a 
I don't know if you've ever been in a place where uh, a spiritual kind of like atomic bomb goes off and everybody mm-hmm. is just kind of like shocked and they don't really know how to respond. Uh, there's just this like blankness on people's faces until you break it open in conversation. That was sort of how it was. And we knew that something really profound had happened and that um, there was something here. So we ended up um, really feeling like, all right, there's we need to to develop this further. But um, it took about like four years for that to go from that moment of showing the short film to actually shooting a feature. Mm-hmm. Okay. Did you did you enter the short into any competitions or anything like that? Or was it merely kind of like a thought experiment? Well, it was owned by the diocese. It was commissioned by them. And so okay. we didn't have the ability to enter it in. I know that they planned to do so, but it's like who's in charge of that in a diocese, right. you know what I mean? Um, yeah. So And it, it ended up like just being for this one event. Um, and it worked very well to promote the conversations that we were trying to to start there. But um, after that, it was just like, you know, uh, laying around doing nothing. And <laughs> we felt like that was that was a bit of a, a, a wasted opportunity. So um, yeah. I'm really glad that that's, that's coming back around now. Okay, question still on the short because of, I want to ask you a question about how you wrote this. In any historical drama, there are, there are facts, there are things that happen that you can portray on film. The hardest thing to portray on film is what people are saying to each other because unless you have, let's say, like courtroom trans- transcripts of what these people actually said, you can work that into your film. But it's just th- this question came to mind last night because I was watching... Um, the new Masters of the Air series on Apple, which is the continuation of Band of Brothers and The Pacific. And it's it's personal to me because the show centers around uh, pilots and crew of B-17 bombers in the Second World War. And my grandfather was a navigator on one of those planes. And the one thing that they can get right, they can get right costume, they can get right technical details of planes, and they can get right the way these planes operate and everything like that. But where I've wondered is as a writer, and I've actually spoken to the writer of this before, but this was just to offer him materials that I had when I found out that he was working on the show. This was like almost 10 years ago. But I don't know how to write about the people involved in historical dramas. What would they be saying? You have absolutely no idea what Colby and these prisoners were saying to each other in these cells. I mean, we have witnesses, so I'm sure that but but I mean I I'm pretty sure like spoiler alert I'm pretty sure no one in that cell survives right so right. there's so even Colby I think is maybe one of the last people to die but what what mm-hmm. how do you get into the headspace or you know do you do you outline do you uh, sticky notes how do you yeah. get into the space of you know okay this is what I think these guys would be talking about yeah I mean the first thing is I think. For every artist, you have to find your own personal connection with the story. And mm-hmm. um, for me, there were this always was really inspired during a time when I left the church. Um, there was a beneath and behind and before the the short film, there were uh, meditations that I was having um, just in the privacy of my own home as I was. Uh, really grappling with my own sort of nihilism, I guess. And mm-hmm. um, I had I had an experience of, of illness that um, kind of ripped my life away from me. Uh, I was about to get engaged and um, all of all of my kind of prospects for 
where I was going with my career all just sort of crashed down um, during this season. Whoa. Sorry about that. That's that <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's amazing. <laughs> anyway, um, I had a, uh, and, and during that time, I was not sleeping and uh, was meditating on Colby from the perspective of being in the cell with him. And mm. it's like having these like really angry, sort of visceral, sarcastic um, voices really coming out of me to, to provoke him. And was feeling kind of like uh, I was trying to get God to, in some way, um, to respond through my anger. And I was like, this feels this feels like a character or maybe a couple different characters. Uh, and so I kind of started with that um, and I think began to talk to other people about if this was you, if you were in this, right? like what would you want to know? What would you say? Uh, to Colby, what would you say to God and what would be the things that you would be grappling with? And I think the big question, at least for me, and that a lot of the other people that I was talking to had when when we got to the point of real honesty was like, why not kill yourself? If you knew that you were going to die and the rest of your life was going to be this slow, absolutely excruciating, you know, march towards death, why not just end it there? Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Um, if Colby is sort of the voice for not doing that, um, and everybody else starts with, uh, yeah, that seems like the most reasonable thing to do, then you have a real, um, you have a real kind of drama, uh, there. So, uh, that, that's really where we started. And then I would say the last part of it is, um, at the time in Auschwitz, there were, it really wasn't like used for, for the Holocaust yet at that time. It was mainly to exterminate people like Colby, people who were of the aristocratic or sort of leadership or intelligentsia class in Poland. And so you have people here who are high ups in Polish uh, in the Polish army. You have mm-hmm. people who were um, who were in government. You had uh, anybody who is a leader in in some way that had influence in the world and who was deemed not to be friendly to the power of the Nazis was going to be brought into this place. And and you actually had homosexuals that were being shipped out from Germany. Um, so that's like a really interesting milieu of types of personalities who um, might have all, at least in, in my mind, when, when you start to get into these levels of society, everybody mm-hmm. knows each other, like, or at mm-hmm. least they know of each other. Mm-hmm. Um, and you start to have like a, a sense of, okay, um, that politician might be in here with somebody from the communist resistance, might be in here with POWs who are fighting um, in the war. And now you have this like very kind of interesting kaleidoscope of personalities that um, now have had their humanity ripped away from them. But if you if Colby is starting to draw that out and you start seeing these kinds of glimpses or glimmers of, of their personalities, you have something really interesting. So that's how I'd bring it. Yeah, I mean, I can't imagine now, well, that that's a great, especially for, for a film, that would seem like a good, diverse group of characters to all have in a room together. But then for a writer, I'm trying, when I'm hearing you say that, I'm like, oh God, now I have to put myself, not oh God, blasphemy, people call me <laughs> out on it. But wow, how do I put myself in the shoes or at least in the mind of a Polish homosexual or a POW Russian, or you know, like like you right. said, um, 
uh, a, co- a communist or part of an opposition party member? How do I do that? Then how do I work in conversation with Colt? That's very, very interesting. Um, and, you know, did you spend as much time developing those characters as you did Colby or were you, or did you kind of not have to do as much with Colby? Cause you're like, I have him down already with these meditations that I've been doing in my life. I don't necessarily need to focus on dialogue as much with him versus the other guys. Oh no, Colby was by far the hardest. Um, mm. yeah, by far the hardest. I think the rest of them were actually a lot more, more accessible. I, I mean, I think that the sanctity is, is really hard to display on screen. And you can't have somebody be flat and have drama, especially not the main character. Even mm-hmm. if they're if they come in and they're the hero, you have you have somebody like their first act in the film is they sacrifice their life for another person to enter into the cell. Like they're they're starting at a pretty high bar of right. like personal kind of like that's like the end of most movies, right? Like the yeah. char- the hero does that, and you know there's no more growth for them. So mm-hmm. I think figuring out how do I find a place of how do I find a real arc for him that is genuine that's that actually does justice to his character um but that also brings us along on a story uh, where we know that he has like places yet to go God has more to do in his life through this play this time in the cell and um that that makes it like this tightrope walk of like how do we show his flaw and really like make that obvious, but still make him likable, but mm-hmm. also um, like give give credence to the fact that he's a already a great saint in many ways, like coming into the cell. So right. um, yeah, that, he was very hard. Everybody else, I think um, there's, it, it, I can translate that person from people that I know, you know, mm-hmm. even, even if there's different experiences, there's archetypes of that that I'm familiar with that I can, kind of put my myself into the shoes of but I think Colby was much much harder and frankly required more personal growth for me to be able to write him right did you see Padre Pio I did yeah okay so let's get into this man I'm well yeah okay so, about this. <laughs> so probably probably one of the worst movies I've ever seen in my life yeah yeah um, I, I I I was so excited to see it you know what I mean yeah even from yeah. the trailer I was saying to myself okay what's what's going on here but yeah. Shia's portrayal of Padre Pio I thought oh man it's like if you gave me an hour and a half of this this is awesome right so what I was what I was going to say was and I mean try to make a point around it was there's obviously a lot of artistic impressionism from Abel Ferrara the director that which he did have his own agenda to do with that movie where he kind of made it into a communist love letter. But (laughs) if he would have focused on, and a lot of people say that he made the mistake by being overtly sexual in the sort of demon manifestations with Pio. And I was saying, I don't think so. I would like to see how gross it is and how much Pio had to overcome when he was dealing with those spiritual battles. Like, you know, Padre Pio is one of the best spiritual soldiers of of our time and possibly of all time. So I didn't mind that. But what I what I hated was this director just wanted to say something that had absolutely nothing with Pio. Nothing to do no, with Pio. Yeah. No, nothing it, to do with Pio at all. It was a complete red herring. Like what do you think happened there behind the scenes? Like to me, well, I was like, this feels like some kind of bait and switch. Like he was right. trying to get Catholics in the door to then mm-hmm. serve them this like 
communist manifesto or something. Right. And de- demonic manifesto, which is, and I'm wondering, Shia, I don't think was there during all days of filming. I think they had him yeah. for maybe like two weeks, it, right. you know, depending on what his stuff was. He went, he gone. And he, I remember he was saying that he screened, or, or Bishop Barron was saying, yeah, and he screened the movie for the for the brothers of, uh, I forget what order um, he's in, uh, he was in with, with uh, in California. Mm-hmm. But I'm wondering if he had to have seen the movie before he screened it. I'm wondering yeah. if he gave the priests and the brothers and the people who were there to say like, hey, listen, I didn't know that this was going to be or turn out this way. Right. Let's focus on the P.O. stuff. <laughs> so it's 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 very hard. It's not that it's very hard. It's very easy for a director to put his own personal spin on this story and then call it something because the movie should not have been called Potter P.O. because it's not about yeah. Potter P.O. This movie's that's called right. Triumph of the... Right. Go ahead. Sorry. Well, I'm just saying like that's... I'm... To me, that's like either a level of self-indulgence that is completely like uh, like it breaks all of the rules of filmmaking in every way. Mm-hmm. So like how, how does somebody get permission to do that? Um, either that or uh, there's some kind of real agenda behind the money to, to do it, to specifically yeah. like target Christians with something that I don't know. I, I don't want to be like a conspiracy theorist, but I feel like the way that I know how money works and how you raise money for films mm-hmm. now, it's like there were people that got behind an agenda and and a pitch that he was making. Sure. Um, you know, and I, I think that that pitch probably had some political spin on it, which is part of why it was so bad. I think it, when you when you set out to make a movie with that kind right. of thing, it really tends to suck. But um, but it's also it's also Abel Ferreira and I'm not surprised. So people yeah. who have never heard of him are like, what is this that I'm watching? If you've ever seen Bad Lieutenant, mm-hmm. you know what you're getting into. But <laughs> right. so that that was my next question about raising raising funds. So do the short, you're you're meditating on turning it into a feature. You're saying there's a lot more here. Uh you know, from from me talking about it, people know that raising money for a feature film is no easy task. Um was yours a as far as budget concerned, what it was it an indie? Was it a micro indie? I, I forget what the classifications are, but um, what what started sort of out as micro indie? indie. Uh, yes. Yeah, yeah. We um the basically like there's a a cap at like 300k, mm-hmm. and that like ends up into a different level. Right. We were planning on staying right under that, and then mm-hmm. we ended up while we were in production, just like having to pull some maydays and and yeah. spend another. We spent all of our post-production budgets. We spent another sixty thousand um, while we were there um, mm-hmm. dealing with some of the problems that were were coming up. But we, um, yeah, I think that part of the raising of the funds um, that was actually very unexpected part of the process. I thought that it was going to be very hard and take a very long time, mm. and um, that actually was not the case. I, I think that the first pitches that I started doing. Um, the first pitches that I did were all to like more institutional places that had uh, like, hey, you can you can drop like 300k right now on this movie, and here's a pitch as to why this would be a thousand times better than anything else that you put 300k into, you know? Sure, sure. Um, and I won't tell, I won't say who passed on it, but all of the yeah, ones, all yeah. of the ones that are out there that could have passed on it. Uh, and could have done it all passed on it. And right. uh, then I was just like, eh, I don't know what to do for maybe, I don't know, uh, like nine months. Um, mm-hmm. And I 
I think November of, of last year, I had my first like dinner where I showed the, the short film to uh, some more like, I guess, fortunate friends of mine. And um, really unexpectedly, they said that they were going to put the first like 10K in. And so I was like, oh, wow, I need to like structure a deal for how, how this is like, what does 10K give you, you know? Right. Um, they gave me money before I was like formally pitching. And so I put together that that deal and then went to a couple of other friends who were of the same kind of uh, template. Like these are not super successful people. They're just people who have some extra um, from investments and from, you know, from businesses that they started or, or whatever. And um, Jeff Scheffelbein, who is the founder of Undivided Life um, and his business partner, Nick Besner, they are, they decided to come in not just as uh, putting in a little bit of money themselves, but uh, the next morning after I met with them, I just met with them for advice. Like, hey, can you advise me on this pitch? Maybe tell me who I should talk to. The next day they said, hey, we're putting in 10K and uh, you should check your inbox. We just sent 70 emails out uh, to other people that we know that are um, that are Catholic that are really that could that could be oh, the awesome. game changers for this. Yeah, uh, I want you to make sure that you followed up with all of them in the next twenty four hours. And um, I, I'm the sort of person that writes like I spend forty five minutes on an email, so it's mm-hmm. like twenty. I'm supposed to email seventy people. Yeah, yeah no way. Uh, it took me about a week to get through all of them, but um, within uh, from th- that was I think that happened in. February and then mm-hmm. from February through through April, I spent the rest of that those two months traveling to people's houses. I was asking not just hey, like if you want to get involved, here's what a share costs. Um, I also was asking, would you be willing to open your home up to host a screening of the short film? Oh, awesome! Your friends. Mm-hmm. So I would do these presentations to groups of 10 to 20 people and yeah within within just a few months we had the full 340k raised that's awesome yeah that's that's like super grassroots and that that is a very interesting way to do it whereas is the way that i'm doing it is i'm raising money on the strength of any actors who become attached to the project who want to do it and this is that's this is this, way of doing it. right yeah. this is the side of the business that a lot of people really don't know about and you know, if 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 I could, the way you went about it, that that's like the optimal way. You find a couple of friends, and having the strength of a short film that's completed and that is good also helps a lot. But when you're going off the strength of a screenplay, you know, you can't send you know twenty of your best friends a hundred and twenty page screenplay and right. expect all of them to get it. And not even that of the one percent who do get it, you can't rely on you know that person to give you six hundred thousand dollars or whatever it is. Right. Right. Um, so it's very tough. Okay, so you raised the money. Uh, this is shot overseas, right? It sh- is it shot yeah. in Poland? Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's that's cool. Okay, so environmentally accurate, geographically <laughs> accurate. That's pretty cool. Yeah. Um, how long is production on the on the film? Uh, so we spent twenty days, twenty shooting days, twenty shooting days. So basically a month all together with like company moves and. Uh, rehearsal days and all that. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now your lead, who plays Colby, looks really familiar. Really? Yeah. yeah. He's a he's a pretty well known, famous like Polish actor. Um, okay. I don't I don't know if he's been in any big like um, 
Netflix films or anything like that, that, that the American audience has seen, but he's definitely a recognizable face for anybody that's, um, watching European, uh, yeah, dramas and, okay. and, uh, he's, he's really busy. He's like working all the time. So his face is all over the place out there. But you do have some people who are part of the cast who have been in, I think you mentioned in your Kickstarter, uh, campaign that we'll talk about a little bit later. There's people that come from, is it, uh, um, Sorry, Game of Thrones and The Chosen? The Hunger Games and The Chosen. The Hunger Games. Okay, yeah, sure. Okay. So, uh, it not, not, uh, so yeah, there's different between cast and crew. Cast, we have people who are um, involved in Hunger Games and also in um, in Doctor Who and okay. uh, some other uh, films like that. Uh, but for crew, we had... Our producer is uh, worked on the chosen, so she's in the the okay. department gotcha. for them. Um, and we also had the the stuntman that works with Tom Cruise and that did Hunger Games and mm-hmm. stuff like that. So he was the coordinator for all of our stunts and uh, any anything that had to look really gnarly, like that guy made. Yeah, turned up the dial on the the violence. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. um, director producer relationship. Are you picking crew or are producers suggesting people to you? I mean, I'm assuming that you picked your DP, right? Like you had a DP lined up, someone that you worked with before, and that's Mm -hmm. who your your guy is. Did you work with a casting director at all? Yeah. So pretty much everybody that was working in the departments, like heads of departments, except for hair and makeup Mm -hmm. and um, costume, she was like, this was her third, third feature. But pretty much everybody else, it was their first. Oh. First feature, first time being in the role um, of like DP or whatever, the head of a department. Uh, we were working with a very like very green crew, and we were knowing that that was going to be the case because of our budget, having to stretch it as far as we were. We were just looking for these people who all had this like kind of incredible talent, had done a bunch of short stuff that we could see they really had um, had something to offer, but who were looking to take a crack at something much bigger and mm-hmm. who would be willing to put in all of that extra suffering and work to to make a movie that was that was five times more uh, powerful than what it should have been compared to its budget so okay uh, yeah and what was it shot on we shot on a on a red komodo and a red um red weapon okay oh cool and how was the was a lot of the budget spent on location? Was it spent on having to shoot in Poland? Or I mean, I'm not saying that like you could you couldn't shoot. I mean, you could shoot it in the states or whatever. But was a lot of the budget eaten up by travel, or was did you find it to be actually the opposite? Actually, yeah, we ended up raising an incredible amount of miles for people to fly out to Poland. I think ninety mm. percent um, of our travel costs when it just came to like getting people to Poland were were covered and and people some people even flew themselves out there to do oh, awesome it. it's crazy um but no I would say that <laughs> the way that the budget proved, there was not one thing that was like this was the expensive thing that really killed us like right everything when you're working at something of this level it's like every single dime is like I have one dollar for you and I have one dollar for you you know like it's mm-hmm. it's everything is is penny pinching um and wheeling and dealing and like getting favors and all that so right 
Um, yeah, the one of the things that did really eat up our budget was um, we had to reschedule our Auschwitz days. So we had two days that we were doing all of our big Auschwitz exterior stuff with all the extras and the mm -hmm. tanks and the like you know all the big uh all the big set pieces the um vehicles and army cars and all that stuff reenactors so um we had to shut down streets with the city and all that but anyway the the two days that we were going to be shooting um we had a, a freak snowstorm come in super early and there was just no way like the polish people they're like dude they are so crazy they think they're like we don't we don't reschedule like we just give the extras hand warmers and stuff we're like we're not putting are people you... in pajamas <laughs> like right <laughs> also i mean like were you worried about continuity or it's just like well yeah, it could, it could have snowed say. or okay it's like no like this is supposed to be august and it in the movie we ended up shooting it as if it was happening in in like sure. october um but still like we couldn't deal with um, and part of it is like some of these days are supposed to cut in with scenes for, from like way later on in the script and yeah. you can't have like snow happening outside while like the guys are like hot and you know not able they're like super thirsty inside like you know that doesn't work so we had to reschedule them and that cost us like an extra 50k oh uh, boy yeah oh so. man well okay so let's talk about the kickstarter because the kickstarter is raising money for post right that's right um, yeah. So for people who don't understand, there's pre-production, there's post, there's actual production, and then there's post-production. So what is, um, is the, is it being kind of like spread out pretty good between like sound mixing, uh, coloring, uh, whatever else, uh, let's music, or is there a bulk of it that's going to something specific? Yeah. So, I mean, we have 20 terabytes of footage. It's like 40 hours plus 10 tracks of audio for every scene for every hour so you're like oh and it's not listening. it's not edited yet right like you yeah, you, not, you put some edited. pieces together for the kickstart and stuff like that okay uh, that was my other question obviously editing is going to eat up a lot of that okay yeah so the first task that we just finished was actually just organizing all of the footage into scenes linking mm -hmm. it up with audio um and just like watching it and pulling the selects for the best um right best scenes and and takes and things so that takes an incredible amount of time like way more time than you think you're basically just kind of loading the ram of the movie when you're doing mm -hmm. that and then um from there we're going to be spending i would say a third of it on the editing itself um a third of it on the uh the sound design a third of it on the composition and then beyond that we're going to be raising if we raise more than the 80k we'll be right. spending the rest of that on vfx and on um things like hey we have a composer that's really good at making like synthetic midi like pre-programmed instruments sound good but now that we have a little bit of extra we're actually going to do a recording session with a string quartet and nice. with um with quite a choir to actually get real um, real music uh, behind it. So things like that that will add a lot of production value with um, with not that that much uh, money. So, yeah. Okay. What is it like? And I'm asking you this question as a dreamer because right now I'm just dreaming. I'm, I'm separating myself from directing this film that I wrote and everyone's like, why are you doing that? 
And I'm saying I'm not in this position to, to do, I, I could do it, but I'm not comfortable necessarily doing it. The person that I have it out to uh, is an actor director and it would be a dream. I'm offering it to him as the lead and to direct it. So if it happens, it happens great. If not, then maybe I'll think about it. But <laughs> as a dreamer, I'm thinking about these things, you know, I already have a DP, that's fine. But the one thing that I think about daily is, oh man, who who can I, I, my dream person to score this film is this person. And it changes every week. Oh, isn't that great? <laughs> now that you actually have a film completed and let's say that you'll have money to do this, like how cool is it to say, yeah, I can actually maybe approach someone or reach out to someone that I really admire to now ask if he or she would like to score my film like how i'm just talking about the feeling what does that feel like it's got to feel awesome dude i don't have that feeling at all like i <laughs> really no yeah yeah not even a little bit i mean like oh, man. i i'm not gonna show up to somebody that's like a dream composer and be like here's 15k to compose mine. <laughs> like, no or no. just even or just yeah. be even in the position to say hey i i thought of you every day while shooting this or at least now that it's completed i see you doing this but not even saying like offer the money but like you yeah. know watch it and we'd love right, to have right. you work like that's what that's what i'm saying sort of being in the position to be able to now reach out to somebody i'm yeah. i'm offering someone air you know what i mean right. like you have something tangible yeah yeah that's true there's it's one of the interesting things about running a kickstarter is that all of a sudden all these other people who are creative um are getting to see it and then put their name in for being mm. involved in post mm -hmm. so we're getting hit up by composers really like every day. Um, and that's been really cool. There've been some really talented people that have put their head, hand, head, hats, put their hats in the, yeah, yeah, mm -hmm. in the, in the ring. So I think that's cool. Part of, part of the difficulty with the project is just everything that like everything is, is, uh, trying to get somebody to do something for just like a fraction of what they normally get somewhere mm -hmm. else. Yeah. Um, and yeah. frankly, it's, it's always hard to make that ask for me. I'm somebody that tends to be a little bit of a people pleaser and mm -hmm. I've had to really mortify that during the process of making this, um, to ask people to, to give favors that are just like ridiculous. Um, I know that a lot of the people that I'm going to be approaching for this, um, as composers are getting like, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars for scores that they're making. And I'm going to be asking them to do it for, uh, like, like I said, like 15 right. to 20K. Right. So right. that's, there's something like almost uncomfortable. And like, I feel sort of guilty when I'm reaching out to people that I'm still trying to work through as a, yeah. as a director myself. Um, although I will say that it is really cool to be able to lean on the work and know, wow, people get really excited about what we're doing from what, uh, right. from what they see. And they're like, wow, I've been waiting for a project like this to come across for so long. And I think mm -hmm. part of that is just like so many people get such meaningless stuff uh, that they have to work on. And a lot of the money that they're getting paid is to work on really heartless, right. absolutely like trash stuff. Garbage, so when they garbage. see something that, <laughs> yes, when they see something like this, they're like, you know, my I, I really would love to, without be making this the thing that makes me money like really lean on my artistic uh, side and see what i can make uh right. to honor this saint so yeah and i'm not yeah and i'm not saying like it's you know you're asking people for charity or anything like right. that or you know out there with a with a with a bowl in your hands but it's almost like one of these things where 
let's just use Hans Zimmer as an example. Like, you know, Hans yeah. Zimmer is getting paid millions of dollars to do scores, Thomas Newman, those types of people. But right. then imagine if you you send out something to Hans Zimmer and let's just say you find out Hans Zimmer out of nowhere is just this Catholic that really never talks about his faith and he sees, oh, Colby is his favorite saint. Not only is he his favorite saint, but he actually likes the movie now that he's seen it. Of course I'll score it for 15 grand, you know what I mean? Just to be attached. Mm-hmm. That's the dream. And it's just exciting to think about things like that. Now, also as a realist, you know, you won't even get an answer from Hans Zimmer's agent, you know, when you right. think about it. But I'm not saying that you won't. I'm just saying that I know if if I reached out, whatever. But um, In the beginning, I, I actually was practicing this. Like I reached out to Shia LaBeouf and to... Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, a lot of the different, t- you know, Catholic, the people who are like on the radar is like, hey, I'm yeah. Catholic and I'm doing films in Hollywood. Um, but the thing is, all of them have this layer between them and yes. the little guy, which is their agent and their agents right. don't give it flying rats <laughs> yes. butt about. Mm-hmm. Um, you got to be nice to the a- <laughs> you got to be nice to the agent's assistants. I found out that that developing good and friendly relations. A friend of mine was like, who do you want to send it out to? I, I, so I said, OK, send send his agent's assistant flowers, you know, just send, send him flowers in a week. And then a week later, call back and say, Hey, uh, I'm like, did you get the flowers? And they'll be like, yeah. And I said, okay, this is a friend who's been in the business for a while. And it's kind of like an old school trick. But like you said, these people have, these people have that little buffer between them. Did you talk to Mel about it at all? Did you try and reach out to Mel? I did. I I, yeah. I also got like shot down from his, his agent too. I didn't, I didn't try the flower thing, but uh, right. their agent, did not seem like the sort of person that would that would fall for the flower trick. Yeah, no, pro- probably not. But you get in the good graces of the assistant, which is good. And I mean, like I've done that to try and get guests on the show, where mm-hmm. I've never been someone who's scared of reaching out to people. So I would just say, mm-hmm. hey, my name is Mike. I do this podcast. It's it's somewhat of you know a moderate size audience. Like we'd love to have Shia on or Mel on. And I got the response that I got from Mel Gibson was like. Hey, thank you for reaching out. He just absolutely has no time as he's starting, I think, work on a production of uh, The Passion 2 or whatever it was. Mm-hmm. The the re- the response that I got from Shia was something like, hey, again, he, his shooting schedule, because I think he's doing some, uh, um, uh, he's the Godfather director, Francis Ford Coppola film or something like that, I remember. But they actually got back to me and I was pretty surprised that they actually gave me a little bit more information rather than like not available or just no answer at all. Yeah. Um, so, so I like that. Okay. That's cool. Um, would you classify Triumph of the Heart as a, quote, faith-based movie? Yeah, that's interesting. I really recoil from things like that. I would, mm-hmm. <laughs> it's funny. I would use that uh, in marketing copy for uh, raising money right now. <laughs> sure, sure, sure. Yeah. <laughs> but I, um, when it comes to distribution, I really want to avoid that because- mm-hmm. I think that um, the truth is, yes, it is, but only insofar as it's part of the actual story. Right. You know, it's it's not shoehorned in the way that um, I think we often have come to expect from the brand of faith based movies. At least it's, you know, we're trying to be really uh, subtle with how it's used. I think because, like, in a lot of ways, Colby himself has to be subtle with it with the guys that he's speaking to you know i think Mm -hmm. that um (laughs) one of the pieces of feedback that i've gotten from a couple of the different you know big players up at the top of the catholic media world has been you know this guy doesn't seem like he's really that like you know uh 
like this this masterful mind of catechesis and theology uh, that we we've expected. And it's like, okay, well, that makes sense because his audience in this cell is guys who give zero shits about right. that. Like, That's what I was just about to say. Yeah. <laughs> as soon as as soon as he steps in the cell and he starts to like make some make some like efforts through argumentation like these guys just like completely shut him off like Mm -hmm. all of them agree the best way out right now is to kill ourselves if that's the case you don't start like trying to make an argument from like thomas aquinas on like god's existence like that's not Mm -hmm. how you get to these people so right i think part of the part of the the reason why this i would say is not necessarily a faith-based film is because um there's a lot of characters in it that are not like that are, that are not obvious like uh, options for that, and that kind of force and ground the movie in much more of a secular audience in a way. So, right. Yeah. Well, it's it's kind of like you you, you made a, a an apt comparison before. It's if if Twelve Angry Men made a faith based drama kind or like if Twelve Angry Men was like a faith based drama. You know, it's 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 a it's a, it's not as much as a of a theological expression as much as it is like a, like a philosophical expression because, like you said, he just can't start, um, you know, start he just can't start doing apologetics to these people because he's not even necessarily was he. I mean, we don't know this, but he wasn't trying to convert these people, right? I guess he was just trying to keep their spirits up, and you know, hey, killing yourself probably isn't the answer here, but he's not going to go into full on, you know, Aquinian apologetics so, so i do get right. that and i've told people like well people have asked me like is this a faith-based movie and people on the blacklist who have evaluated it every every single one of the prospects are like this would be great for a faith-based studio to produce and i'm just like, no not yeah no and i always pitch it to people like it's as if a24 would make a faith-based movie and you know oh, that, i love that man yeah right? no, it's like so it's like oh i kind of know what he's saying here yeah. It wouldn't be this whole underlying theological uh, sort of environment surrounding the movie, even though there are aspects of that. So it's very interesting that, you know, these people have these sort of comments like, well, Kobe wasn't, you know, he wasn't um, engaged, in, engaged in apologetics throughout this whole movie. Isn't that what it's supposed to be? It's like, no, it's about a guy who who has uh, given up his life in order to save another and then being in a room with the most diverse group of people from these, like, I guess, groups that don't have anything to do with each other, and they're just trying to survive. So, mm-hmm. you're, yeah, you know, it's not a, um, not necessarily, I don't know, how, what's the best way to put this? It's not like a, um, like a, a movie that's preaching Christianity, right. if that makes any sense, right? Yeah, right. Uh, I definitely know. not. I, I would say that it certainly has a. It certainly has. It's like, a Catholic a movie, moral, right? Like, like we're trying to say that that in for some reason, despite the the sort of math that like it, you you look at like this equation with with the eyes of the world, um, it it we're still saying that even in this situation, it's better that they don't kill themselves. You mm-hmm. know, it's better that they fight um, for their lives all the way through the very end. Right. Um, and I think that uh, we're making a statement about the, the the foundations of reality, like what real how reality works. But it's it's not really a theological one as much as it is this like um, very human 
very human one. And the stakes are very human, but yeah. faith is a part of that. So, um, yeah. I don't know if it's like whoever watched this movie high up in the Catholic Church was like, well, surprisingly, he didn't quote the catechism to these people. So <laughs> uh, not for me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But um, I, I, yeah, so are you, you're, you're making this clearly like something that you want to do that's more art house if it's yes. like A24. Yes. Um, so I would like to hear your thoughts on this uh, because this is the comment that I've gotten a lot, which is um, Catholics don't like art house cinema and you're making a feathered fish. I've heard that many times. What would you say to that? I would say, have you ever heard of Terrence Malick or Tarkovsky? That's what I would. That's that's what I would say. I mean, yeah, but those guys never made money. <laughs> well, Malik Malik made. Yeah, true. And I mean, if if they're looking at it from that point of view, then sure. Yeah. But if they're looking at it from culture, if they're looking at it from art in general, then yeah. um, then no, it doesn't matter because this was going to be one of my questions. Can you name some of your favorite secular films that do have a spiritual foundation to them? And that's where I would bring up Tarkovsky, where Tarkovsky, there, there are films of his where, you know, religion is at the center of it. But then you have someone like Terrence Malick, who you can tell, like, this dude is 100% a Christian philosopher. Like, we know this 100%. There are, wow, he's like, he's he has dialogue from the St. Patrick's breastplate prayer into the wonder. Like, what is he, what is he right. thinking about? So as far as someone mm-hmm. says, like, What's the quote that the Christian films or Catholics don't like films that are what that are feathered? Uh, oh yeah, there's two. There's two different things. One is they don't like art house films, but then to illustrate that, they're saying this is a feathered fish. You're making a a movie for like a sort of audience that's into faith, but yeah. you're making it this indie, um, more darker style, right? Yeah. Um, and well, that to them doesn't compute. It's like sure. This, audience is like we want high high key lighting very happy endings like this yeah. is what we're talking about with that so i get that well i mean not everybody okay so there's like two sides to that coin right like you can make a movie like the passion of the christ right yeah. huge huge studio movie you have mel gibson and this thing makes you know hundreds of millions of dollars if not billions of dollars and then you go to the other side where you have these certain studios i'm not going to name them who make these movies where you do have the key lighting, you have, you know, the people who were at one point maybe, you know, A-list or B-list actors who are now in this realm of yeah, Sure, sure. (laughs) And it's the same story every single time. So at least with an art house movie, if the point of the film isn't thrown directly at your face, then that's okay. Like, it, it causes people to think a little bit more. Oh, it's okay. It's a guy who's a former. He's, he's an alcoholic. Like, like Father Stew, I w- thought was going to be kind of cool, and then when I saw it, I was like, oh, I, really? Yeah, I was. I liked it. I'm not. not I, I'm not like just looking for really. I, I definitely don't like the the faith super faith based stuff. I actually thought it was really good. It was it was good, but in a weird way, I was like, why is this rated R? This is rated like why. <laughs> Why I that there's part of that movie that I didn't like, but also it was that formula that you are talking about that I'm like, guys, if it's not and let's talk about like let's get the money out of it. Like do you do you do you wanna hit people in their spiritual hearts or do you wanna hit them in the wallet? Because it's awesome to hit them in both places, right? But I think a film is more profound if 
you know, the person who sees it is thinking about it a month later, two months later. Mm-hmm. You know, how many times yeah. is he going to go to the movies? How many times is he going to stream it? I mean, that's something that that I think about a lot. And, you know, with with the movie that I'm making, it's 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 going to be an indie for sure. And I've had to tone down a lot of the Catholicism in it because at, at at first there was it was completely secular. Then it turned into really Catholic. And then I'm like, I want to reach as many people as possible, but the Catholics who do watch this, they're going to say, well, this is kind of like nothing I've really seen. This is cool. So I don't know. It's tough. I get that. I get what you're saying, though. But It's tough because in a lot of ways, I feel like artists like yourself and, and I'd say myself definitely want to stretch our audiences. Like we, we as human beings are probably like outliers when it comes to our tastes and the sort of things that we we like and our, our willingness to sort of embrace things that are um, far afield from what's like mainstream, even in our own kind of group. And yeah. I don't know if that's the case for you, but um, I would definitely say w- when I'm thinking about like, okay, my mom, will mm-hmm. my mom watch this? Will she like this? It's like, <laughs> right. like right. this is going to be really tough for her to get yeah. through. Um, and, you know, I don't know how much like, Passion of the Christ, we watch every Lent, and I'm, I I think it's still like one of the more difficult things that like my mom has ever gotten into and gotten behind. So oh, obviously yeah. it can be done, mm-hmm. um, but I think it's a it's there's a risk to the people economically who are investing in the film, right? And right, if we don't solve that problem as filmmakers, we're not going to get shots at doing um, the real doing this stuff sustainably, you know, sure, making sure. our jobs about it. So yeah, well, here's, that's what I've been thinking about with this. I think about that too all the time. I think about, well, let's say that it's not necessarily a commercial hit, but it, it, it does well on uh, the, uh, the, the, the film festival circuit or something like that, or it does well with awards or whatever it is. It's like, hey, we didn't have the financial success that, you know, that we necessarily wanted or that I even thought that we would have guess what? It's a tax write-off anyway. So that's a benefit. <laughs> um, but yeah, I've, I, I've always wondered about that. Like I, I, I would campaign on, you know, my film or your film, like let's, let's get these Catholic, not Christian, let's get these Catholic films into the mainstream uh, film festival circuits. Let's see what we can do there. Because if, if there's any film that breaks that, I think you only start to get um, more people involved in wanting to at least make I don't want to say like Catholic centered movies, but it's it's the one thing that as far as culturally, not Christians, but like conservative groups, they don't do well. They don't do art very well. And mm-hmm. it's been it's been lacking because if you go to like the beginning of Hollywood and even people like Malik and Tarkovsky during the 70s, uh, there are points where just conservatives don't get it right. They just they really don't. They miss the ball. And I want to, I don't know, I guess have my Are you saying that about Malik like and Tarkovsky? Like, yeah. Like you're saying like consi- uh, they didn't get it right because they were conservative? No, no, they like- did. They they did apart, apart from them. You know, what I, you know what I mean? So it's just like, it's like you're saying like conservatives, they don't, they can't wrap their heads around art house pictures. Mm-hmm. You don't know how many people I've tried to get into Malik who are yeah. conservative. It's like, you have to watch this. And they're like- Nothing happened. I sat there for two and a half hours and nothing. I mean, look, okay. It's look like at, a ballet, dude. Yeah. You're like, right. I'm going to save somebody the ballet. 
I'm sure you watched, um, 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 was it A Quiet Life? Hidden Life, yeah, yeah. <laughs> right, Hidden Life. How did I even get that wrong? It's like one of my favorite guys ever. But mm-hmm. that film is so, like, so beautiful. I thought about that film, you know, for the years after it's it's been out, right? And mm-hmm. the one great thing about Malik is, is like, there's no dialogue. It's all exposition. It's all inner monologues of somebody. And it's an incredibly beautiful and important movie. And it just pains me that people are like, well, nothing really happened for two and a half hours. And I'm just like, well, it's like, what do we do? Yeah. Well, one of the things that's really interesting to me, you know, is like, um, you think about like what's mainstream now and what's what's mainstream back in, in like the... 20th century and 19th centuries and you're mm-hmm. like uh yeah you have people like Dostoy or Tolstoy or Dostoevsky who become like invited to the king's court because uh Brothers K is like one of the best things ever made right like mm-hmm. if 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 that guy is a household name in Europe like that meant that mainstream people were reading the Brothers Karamazov right mm-hmm. like they had the patience to sit through like whatever, however many six hundred pages of of long Russian dialogue where like n- nothing is happening according mm-hmm. to like the you know uh, current cinematic standards. I think that just in general our our culture and unfortunately even like conservative culture when it comes to our appreciation of art and beauty, we've gotten so lazy, like so yeah. lazy, yeah. And our attention spans have been so like massaged and slowly and subtly condensed by um, our encounter with modern media. And um, I think that that is, unfortunately, uh, you even see this with like, yeah, conservative culture to to me seems to be even more unwilling to embrace more poetic, artistic, like higher art stuff than, than, um, than liberal culture is, which is... I, I don't see how that's even possible considering like our history and the art that we, right. that is the foundation of our worldview, you know? So, yeah, it's tough because I don't want to lay, you know, everything on the conservatives because when you have a liberal country and a liberal mm-hmm. entertainment industry where really the only time you see, you know, the portrayal of Catholics in film is if it's, you know, if, if it's a complete heresy, like the Da Vinci code, if it's, exorcism or horror movies that are purely dem- demonic and uh, exaggerated or if it's yeah. or if it's surrounding you know any sort of controversy within the church whether it be priests Child or nuns or something yeah, yeah. yeah like it's just like that's that's the only thing that we get and mm-hmm. then they make a lot of money those movies are nominated for academy awards like spotlight and doubt and all those kind of things and <laughs> right. things like and i mean i'm talking about like modern horror movies because the exorcist is probably one of the best catholic movies like ever to come out um written by, you know, a very, a very, uh, obedient Catholic and William Blatty. But even the new, even the new iteration of the exorcist believer, I don't know if you've seen it, but it was mm. like, it's like, Hey, uh, these kids are possessed. Let's talk to the Catholic priest. The Catholic priest says, okay, what I have to go do is I have to go do the I have to go to the diocese. They have to determine if this is a psychological problem or if this really is a spiritual problem. People are like, Oh really? That's not how, I, yeah. They come back listen, we've determined that this isn't a true um, uh, possession, that it's more of a psychological issue. I can't be involved in any sort of exorcism at all. And then the people are like, well, guess what? It's going to take all of the world's religion to do this. And it's just like, you guys, you're 
it, it's complete it's stupid i hate it mm-hmm. um but like i'm saying like anything to sort of disparage the roman catholic or the catholic church obviously they're going to do that and then you, you get a movie like a hidden life or you get a movie like triumph of the heart and then it's just nothing it's just in the ether people people it's not pushed as much as like the pope's exorcist or anything like that there is no art house for christian films i'm trying to think of have there any that i've seen lately that are like expressly like christian no mm-hmm. it's like yeah. so what do we so what do we do i think we have to we have to create it yeah i think we have to create it and somehow we have to find the like what mel gibson did which was to make something that that feels artistic but also feels commercial if that makes mm-hmm. sense and mm-hmm. oh yeah um somehow like that movie you think about like okay how does somebody do the crucifixion and do jesus's story and um mel gibson had the courage at that time which was much before any of this other stuff happened to to put like demon babies you know <laughs> yeah like, yeah like satanic snaky guys and stuff like it, it's like right you know, really gritty and really dark. And he, he did some like psychological stuff that was very um, subtle, very horrifying, but like, mm-hmm. and in Aramaic. Yeah. Like, and, and I think, I think just there was something about him from, for me that I've sort of elevated as the, this is the guy I'm shooting for, even though I love mm-hmm. Malik and I love yeah. the um, work that he does. I just know that I don't get to make that kind of film until I've like made enough money to, be able to to rest on my laurels and and do some sure. self-indulgent stuff you know right <laughs> yeah so yeah i get that mine is completely self-indulgent if i'm honest that <laughs> that's what it is um so yeah i'll start off with the malik and if the success of the malik works out then i'll maybe go uh Bill Gibson. Um, that's amazing <laughs> well yeah i mean the, the 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 main character has my name and, and it's just like I mean, that's a placeholder. Does he have a massive mustache too? Uh, he could. He could. He, he definitely so. could. Um, I'm thinking. Well, the actor could pull it off for sure. Um, so I might. I might impart that on him. But uh, listen, thank you. Thank you for coming onto the show. I really do appreciate it. Uh, I'm going to put links, uh, especially in the YouTube upload. I will put a link where, that you can click on to the Kickstarter. Um, is that how? How? long until that ends is it something that i said like 22 days or something yeah we have we have just about a month left and your goal has been reached but you're just setting kind of like more goals just as far as like wanting to raise more money like you initially had a goal of twenty thousand dollars and you blew past that right so you guys are getting money yeah yeah it's one of the most successful crowdfunding campaigns i've ever seen um and i've participated in a lot of them so it's a it's definitely striking a nerve um, yeah, we, the truth is we, we set, we set out to hopefully raise 80 K it's mm-hmm. clear that we're going to do that. We're probably going to do that in the next couple of days. Um, but we needed much more than that ultimately. And any, any dollar that comes in, not only is it going to help us to make the movie much more, uh, much more powerful, but mm-hmm. it's going to help us to prove to distribution that it's a, it's a movie worth picking up. I mean, in yeah. the past, it would be like it did well in film festivals, but like now that doesn't matter at all. There's no evidence um, for mo- money. Right. right. Okay, so like these crowdfunding campaigns, they are sort of like proof proof to distributors that 
there's a market there that is willing to put money behind the film. And if yeah. uh, the more money that's put behind it, the better of a deal that it's going to, uh, they're going to make us when it comes to, hey, do we get a theatrical release or do we just get straight to the, um, you know, send straight to the streaming platforms or, right. uh, you know, uh, how much money are we going to put behind this in terms of marketing, et cetera. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, listen, Anthony, I'm going to put all those links down there. Thank you so much for talking to me. And uh, I can't wait to see it when it comes out. And uh, I respect your decision for doing the short in black and white. And <laughs> if you guys if you guys haven't seen it, you can you can uh, you can definitely Google uh, the short um, because it is people can watch it on Vimeo. So mm-hmm. it's there. Right. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. People um, people can find it and search, you know, Maximum Colby short film or something like that. And you'll you'll yes. find it. Okay, thanks, Anthony. We really do appreciate it. And um, I'm going to stick around because I want to ask you a question after off air. Okay, but, uh, sounds good. But yeah, thank you very much and God bless. Okay, thank you. Uh, yeah. Okay.